0: Well, good morning. How are you guys all doing? Good. So uh, Pastor John didn't introduce me uh, last service, so they had a great surprise, but you guys already knew. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Jake. Uh, I'm the high school director here at Community, and thank you. I'm so, so excited uh, to be such an encouragement to you guys this morning, uh, something that so easily flies by our heads uh, in our Christian walk, and so I really hope to be benefit that way. As I get started, I would love to just be um, sending thank yous to some people in my life who have influenced me, who inspired me to be preaching on this this morning, uh, people like Milton Vincent, Mike Bullmore, and specifically uh, my internship professor, Dr. Rogers, which fun fact, uh, he may not be happy that I'm t- telling you guys this, but since he is not my professor anymore, I can now call him by his first name, Mark. So that's cool. But Dr. Rogers, if you are watching, I, I'll, I'll always call you that. Same thing like sports coaches, I'll always call you coach, I'll never call you by your name. Uh, but anyways... Like I said, my internship professor. I am a senior at CBU. This is going to be my very last semester. We got one week till we go back there. So (laughs) one more week till that semester get graduated. I graduate in April, get married in May. So I'm very excited about that as well. Thank you. But since it is my last semester, it's been such a, a funny blessing to be able to see just the kind of poor or better student I was Uh, Through the four years I was at CBU, uh, some of the memories that I just reminisce on, I can think of like my freshman year, uh, that was COVID year. So it was me and my friend Andrew cooped up in our dorm, so I literally woke up, went to my desk to do my online classes, and then walked my butt outside to to, uh, Habit, the um, burger place, and unfortunately gained 15 pounds that semester because the gym was closed. Uh, I remember my sophomore year. My sophomore year is the very first time that I had an all-nighter studying. For this class, my system, systematic theology class, I literally began studying the night before, 10 o'clock at night, all the way till the class started at 8 a.m. I just closed my book and walked to class. Uh, it was not fun, but don't be impressed by that because the study guide was given two weeks before that. So I have, I have no excuse of me staying up late. That's my fault. I can remember my junior year, that was the first time I actually was afraid that I'm going to fail a class. And luckily, I studied hard. I, I got a C, so I'm super blessed by that. Barely, barely made it. But I was terrified about that. And even my senior year, uh, like I said, last semester, but I'm still, when I walk through the door on January 8th, I'm still going to be afraid something's going to happen that's going to ruin my chances of graduating. Maybe send me back into the semester, another year. Not going to be happy. But I was afraid in many of those times. And I can remember, who who went to the uh, Christmas service last week? You guys have an amazing time. I had a great time. You may have seen me and Pastor Joe uh, doing the pre-service stuff with our little games and everything like that. Uh, During John's little sermonette as he was coming up after his videos and the worship, uh, he talked a little bit, just a few sentences about what we fear, right? So he said, who's afraid of spiders? Who's afraid of snakes? Uh, The thing that was popping up into my mind, what I'm afraid of, you guys ever heard of thalassophobia? anything from that? If you guys don't know what that is, uh, it's like the fear of like big or like deep water. And it might come to a a surprise for you because my family for years, ever since I've been born, have been just river people. Like anybody go to Havasu or Per Parker, we love going there. I'm the first one right off the boat, throwing my snorkel goggles on, going on the coast, maybe trying to find fish or find cool little uh, shells. But looking down into the deep, seeing that we're just dives off, that green water coming deeper and deeper and darker something's going to get me. So that's one of my fears. I don't know what you guys are afraid of. Maybe it's something small, like spiders. not making fun of you guys for those who are afraid of spiders. Maybe it's something big. Maybe you're just like afraid to die alone. Maybe afraid to die. Anything like that. But some of these fears, they bring us to a point oftentimes, like if we were face-to-face with our fears, we might just be like thinking like, this is it. I'm dead. I better start texting, start calling my family, telling them I love them, start planning my will, everything like that. But the fears that we have often bring us to a place where we start thinking about our future, start thinking about, hey, what's, what's after this life? Or even how it's going to affect our lives now. And so a question that I have for all of you this morning, Christian or not, is how many of you are afraid? How many of you are afraid that you are not right with God? And I think if you look to your left and to your right, I think we'd be surprised how many actual Christians are scared to answer that question. They don't know the answer, and I'm quite confident the answer of whether or not you are scared or not, if if you are right with God, is based on what you know or what you don't know about the subject. This fear, this fear leads us to live a certain way. What we're afraid of or what we think and believe causes us to live a certain way. So if we are afraid that we're not right with God, we're gonna be feeling like we don't deserve his love, we're gonna be feeling insecure, or he's gonna be leading to a state of depression, it could lead us to thinking that we have to earn our way to get to God or for God to accept us. And so what do we need for all of our fears, whether it is fear and you're not, you're not right with God, fearing uh, deep water or fearing, fearing spiders, whatever it may be, what do we need as a remedy to help figure out this problem? And what I have for that is that we need assurance, right? Anybody else just like, I need to be assured of everything that I'm worried about on a day-to-day basis. I need to be assured that I have enough money. Got to be assured that everybody's getting ready on time. I got to be assured that there's no big old fish in the deep water. We need assurance in our lives for the fears that we have. Because if not, we're going to be getting eaten up by our fears and not living a life that we like to enjoy. And so what do we need in the Christian life? What do we need to get this assurance of knowing that we are or can be right with God? Mike Bullmore, uh, who I referenced saying thank you to in the beginning, uh, he is a pastor out of Wisconsin, kind of random, I know from me bringing it up, but he goes, he's brought and invited to this organization now, some of you guys may know, called the Gospel Coalition. They send him this letter and he receives a question. They ask him, as as, as well as many other pastors, they say, what is the most crying need in the church today? The answer that he gives, I think, is going to be the exact same answer to how we solve or how do we overcome or figure out the fear that we have of whether or not we are right with God. And it is nothing new. What I'm going to be saying this morning, what Mike Bullmore said, is nothing revolutionary. It is in our faces, the gospel in Scripture But nonetheless, it is so easily, some of the things that are just in plain sight fly by our heads, right? This is what he says. This is his quote. So what do we need? What is the most crying need in the church today? He says, not just a biblical theological literacy, but a functioning biblical theological literacy, especially a functioning gospel. So in other words, if you didn't know what that quote meant, do you know and understand your Bible, and more importantly, do you know and understand the gospel? And this isn't necessarily just you knowing a certain amount of verses, or you know what, who wrote certain books, or what time they were written, or what verse goes with which kind of doctrine that Christianity teaches. This is amazing knowledge to have, right? I'm a theology guy. You can talk my ear off all day long, and I will love it. But if it is not functioning properly in our lives, is this stuff that we know about God and about the Word and about Christ, about the gospel— If it is not functioning in our lives, then all the stuff that we know about them is going to be vain. Our faiths will shrivel up because they're based on what we know rather than God. And some of us in this room continue to stand condemned because we do not know the gospel. So this idea of the gospel not just being some statement in a book or some cool dinner table conversation or only for the pastor to know and then for you guys to be taught But if it is the foundation, if it is the root, the cornerstone of where we base everything in our faith, how we view us going to work, how we view our relationship with our husbands or wives, with our kids, how we deal with sin or habitual sin or temptation, if all of that is rooted in an understanding of the gospel, then that is going to give us the power to have a life changed now. All over scripture, you're going to be able to see that the authors of the books give you commands as Christians. They might explain something uh, that happened in the Old Testament. They might be making claims. But it is, always, it is always in light of the gospel. They always point back to what Christ has done for us. And so it is a functioning gospel, a gospel that is applied effectively into your lives, the way that it changes your thoughts, the way it changes your actions, that is going to be effective. It is they, they saw this functional gospel in everywhere in our Christian life. So, how do I know if I am right with God? Am I right with God? Why must I get right with God? What must I do to be right with God? We need assurance. And I believe this morning, as I said, to be an encouragement to you, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5. You can get your little Bible apps out, or if you have just an old fashioned book in your hand, that's even better. I'm I'm an old guy. I need pages right in front of me. So you guys go ahead and take that out. Romans 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 5 this morning. Starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to be stopping just right at the first word. Therefore. I know we want to kind of get into the meat and bones of the verse, talking about how we're justified by faith, how we have peace by God. But it is this connecting word, therefore. We're going to be taking you guys to an English class this morning. What the word therefore is is a conjunctive adverb. And if you don't know what that means, it connects two different sentences or two different clauses. It shows the function or shows the relationship between those two things that may not make sense apart from each other. So he's saying, therefore, we are justified by faith. We have peace with God, but he's still talking about something before. And what he is, the context to this verse is chapters one through four. Everything that Paul's been saying in the first four chapters, he's relating to this very first verse of chapter five. And so this example of therefore, right? Just a few, few examples. Johnny does not lie. Therefore, you can trust Johnny. You can see the relationship between those two sentences right there. Another example, this is my last semester of school. Therefore, I'm gonna be stressed out of my mind. You can see the relationship with that as well. So, this word, therefore, talking about chapters one through four. We see in chapter one, Paul is saying, the Gentiles and the Jews, we are all Gentiles. I don't know if we have any Jewish people in here. If not, raise your hand. Okay, nobody. Good. We're all Gentiles. What is what Paul is saying about Gentiles is that: hey, you do not have the law, but you have morality in your heart. You know that you sin, that there is a God up in heaven, and you choose to instead choose your life, your will, what you want for your life, rather than what God has planned. Chapter two, he's he's making sure, Jews, you're you're not one to talk. You've literally been given the revelation of God through the Old Testament. You have more than anybody, yet you still sin, so you are under condemnation just like the Gentiles. And so chapter three, he sums it all up. In verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I've had many people ask me, Jake, if your God is so loving, why does he not or why hasn't he yet taken all the evil and all the sin out of the world? And to that question, first I say that I 100% believe that he will one day when Christ returns. But a question that I send back to them is that if you think that he, yeah, if, if he took all the evil and sin out of the world, what makes you think that he would not first start with you? Some people in here do not, aren't even afraid about the question of if they are right with God. And I tell you, those who do not fear, you should be. Because when Christ returns, there will be a judgment. Every deed that we do will be counted for us. And if you are not in Christ, then there's no salvation in that. When you recognize your sin for what it is, how lowly you are, how much of a finite person you are, and recognize who God is, him holy, righteous, perfect, a just God who will bring justice for those who sin against him and sin against their neighbors, when you recognize that, you begin to understand, like, yeah, there is nothing that I can do to make up for my sin. I need to believe in God to forgive me. That's quite obvious when you have a good idea of what sin is and who God is. I believe, I am convinced, that if you have a low view of sin, if you can care less about your sin, and that means you have a low view of God because you don't see the need for him. If you think you're sustainable, that you don't need to pay, that there's not justice to be brought for the sins that you have done against yourself, against him, and against your mother, father, sisters, brothers, friends, then you are not going to see the need for him. That, can make, that makes complete sense. Some of you guys think this morning that, yeah, you may have sinned, but that you can do stuff to make up for the bad things you've done in your life, for the things that you're not proud of. You might say, Jake, I'm a decent person. I've tried to obey what God commands. You just try to live a good moral life. Of course, I can be better. There's always gonna be somebody better, but I'm for sure not as bad as the person sitting next to me right now. I'm sure they got stuff that they're not proud of. And so if I sin, when I sin, if how you wanna put it, Jake, and if I ever feel guilty, I'll make sure to make up for it some way, shape, or form. Whether that's not doing it again or making up for it. If you're cheating, making up to the person you cheated on. If you're lying, telling the truth. But what scripture says about us making up for our sin, it says, he called, uh, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 64 6 says that they're like filthy rags in the eyes of God. Have you guys ever tried cleaning something with a muddy towel? That doesn't really make sense, right? Have you guys ever tried drying something off with a damp towel? It's gonna make the situation worse. And the same way, the same thing applies to you as humans. We have a perfect God. God has set the standard. It says for all fall short of the glory of God. Your standard, my standard to meet is the glory of God and I fail that the second I sin. So we should not think for a second that doing a good thing is gonna make up for that bad. The second we sinned, we lost that chance of glory. And every single one of us have done that, and so we see Romans three twenty three. We've already read that, but verse twenty four says, "And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." To so recognize it is not by me, but it is through Christ. In chapter four, we're able to see the leader, the father of Israel, Abraham, says, "The righteous shall live by faith." that there's no works, there's no deeds, there's no thing that you can make up for your sin except having faith and recognizing that you can't do anything about it. So therefore, now we're back to chapter five. Therefore, since you have been justified by faith, since that is how you're saved, we now have peace with God. I go to my first point. Through the gospel, we are in right standing with God. We have peace with God. We are right with God through what Christ has done for us. And what has he done for us? It is the perfect life that he lived, sinless that we could not. It was dying on the cross, bearing God's wrath that we deserved. It is him resurrecting from the dead, defeating sin, defeating death, something that we could never be able to do. It is now interceding for us, for God. It is belief in who Christ says he is it is a belief in what he has done, and it is belief in recognizing who Christ says you are that will make you saved and make you assured. It will make your slate clean. He will wipe your slate clean and take your fear away. That day on the cross that Christ died, there's probably there's a few hundred of us in here. Think about every single sin that you've ever done, will do and doing right now, took that, if you are a believer, has taken that, And has wiped your slate clean. And not only has he done that, now that your sins are gone, right, you're kind of just like in the neutral zone, but what he has done for you is given you his righteousness, he's given you his holiness. So now every single time that you sin, or even if you don't, every time that God is looking at you, he does not see a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner, but he sees his perfect and beloved son. And it is so comforting to know that. There is no enmity, there is no war, there is no strife, there is no anger between you and God because you have been reconciled by Christ. You've been made right. So here we see what a functioning gospel does. You see, knowing the word and specifically the gospel changes the way that we think. If you are a believer today, this morning, or wish to be this morning, you now are at peace with God. And it is knowing scripture and how that relates to you and your life that is going to continue to push you on in your Christian life. So instead of you trying to earn your way to God, which every other religion will tell you, that man has to earn his way to God. You can recognize that, no, I'm not going to obey God's commands. I'm not going to repent for my sin. I'm not going to live for God because I have to earn his acceptance. But what the gospel tells you, believers, is that you've already received acceptance And now because of gratitude and love that you had for God because you've been forgiven, you now go obey his commands because you love to. You go and repent because you hate your sin. You go and live for God because you recognize everything else that I have in this life now is worthless compared to what I have in Christ. It is based on what Christ has done for you rather than what you have done for him. And this might be news to some people. You might have been Christian for years. And this might be something new that you learned. like, wait, I don't have to earn my way to be loved by God, you might be struggling with sin, thinking that you cannot be in his presence. And I tell you, point to scripture and understand that you have peace with God. Not only are you in right standing with God, but point number two, through the gospel, we are in right relationship with him. And that is found in verse two of Romans chapter five. Let's read it. Verse two. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So obtained access, that is what you think it means. You have the key, you have the card, you have VIP access to the grace that has been given to you in Christ. And once again, it is through him. This is Paul carrying on, Said, hey, you have been saved by grace, but it is also in grace that you live. And we, we struggle to recognize that we are to live in this grace. It says, into this grace, God's unmerited favor for you. Unmerited favor for you. A verse that really helps seal this idea in our, in, in our mind. I used this many weeks ago, talking about communion. It's what it says in uh, Hebrews 4. Verse 16, this is what it says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Is anybody else always in a time of need? <laughs> or is it just me? When you are in a time of need, it says you can go confidently, not cautiously because you don't know what God's reaction is going to be to your sin or not insecurely because you just cannot believe you just blew it up again after you just said you would never do that sin. But it says to go confidently, to go boldly to the grace in which we stand. So this should be a constant living. This idea of standing is not passive, but it is experiencing this love and this grace that we have, that grace that Christ has given us. So I'm willing to bet some of you in this room are tired, and are ready to give up because you have shame in your life. You feel like you do not deserve God's love and God's grace. And I tell you, yeah, you don't. Neither do I. But what good news is it that it is not based on us, amen? So since you are a believer, if you're struggling with that, since you are justified by faith, that means you are at peace with God. And so you are able to stand in his grace because you have it. Some of us Christians don't know all the blessings that we get. We have grace, and so when you go and sin and are grieving it, you're able to go back to the Lord because he will joyfully accept you. Some of you think that you guys shouldn't be here, maybe in the back row just sneaking in and really feel like you don't deserve to be here. You think, okay, Jake's preaching it. I've always heard some Christians say that God can forgive everyone. But Jake doesn't know what I've done. He doesn't know the mistakes I've made or the life that I'm trying to leave behind. And I tell you that, no, I don't. But I do know the God, if you are a believer, who has given you access into grace to come forth, to go into the throne of grace confidently and receive mercy and grace for when you need it. So I say to everybody who's struggling with sin and thinking God will not accept him, get over yourself and trust that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do, and he will accept you and forgive you in your grace because of what Christ has done. So you remember, believers, all the sin that you think is God is going to punish you for has already been thrown entirely upon the shoulders of Christ when he died on the cross. So there's no sin that you think, like, you're going to surprise God with. God is not just, like, you can't get the jump on God He knows before the foundations of the world what we were gonna do, and yet he still forgives you. But once again, that is in Christ. And so we have all these worries. We have these pains and doubts because we do not reflect and meditate on the gospel daily. We don't know what the gospel does for us. And it is why we need to be in the word. And I say that not to judge. I say that not, not to discourage you, but to invite you into the very thing that sustains my faith when I fall into sin. Go to the throne of grace because we have access. We make this mistake, living our Christian lives. We do everything opposite of what the gospel is telling us to do. We think, okay, I need to be obedient to God so that I can receive His acceptance. But in reality, when you understand the gospel, when you understand the Word of God and who Christ is, you understand, like, no, it's not what the gospel says. It says that I am if I am in Christ, if I'm a believer, That I have received acceptance that I am at peace with God and knowing that truth, knowing that truth, not just that it's right there in Romans 5, but knowing in your life and applying it, you can recognize that you are at peace and that you do not need to obey God. You don't need to repent from your sins. You don't need to live a life dedicated to God based on obligation, but you do that out of love and gratitude for what he's already done for you. Mike Bullmore, who I referenced in the beginning, saying thank you to him. Uh, In his speech, Functional Centrality of the Gospel, he talks about this little um, illustration. Now, it's not going to be on the board, but I want you to create it in in your mind. Think about, anybody know what concentric circles are? Right, one small, get bigger, get bigger, bigger. So right in the middle, I want you guys to just have one small circle in your mind and just slap the gospel into there. He says that everything that we do in our lives, every decision that we make, Every relationship that we have is going to be lived through and drawn back to what the gospel says about believers. And so when we recognize that, yeah, Christ has died for my sins. He has paid for the sins of the world. He has died, been resurrected, and now is with the Father. When we understand that, we're able to go to our second circle, gospel truths. So make a little bit bigger circle, write down or type whatever you do in your head. Gospel truths. This is not the gospel, but it is. But they are implications of what we as Christians receive or what we have, who we are when we put our faith in Christ. Romans 5 is a perfect example. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, right there, that's the gospel, having faith in what? Having faith in Christ, dying for our sins. Since that is happening, we have peace with God. So the, uh, the gospel truth for you this morning, if you are a believer, you are at peace with God. And what is that supposed to do? The very last circle, gospel behavior. Write down gospel behavior in your mind. We have a gospel, gospel truths, gospel behavior. What we know about us, our identity as Christians, what we have will soon change the way that we choose to live our lives. So I'll give you an example. Ephesians 4.24, it says, forgive because you have been forgiven. So that verse, right at the very end, you have been forgiven. That is the gospel. You've been forgiven of your sins through what Christ has done for you on the cross. That is another gospel truth. You've been forgiven. Christians, you have been forgiven of the sins that you've done, doing, and are going to do. And so by implication, by the natural behavior, by recognizing God's love for us, we can say, okay, Christ has died for me because I am a Christian, so let me go forgive others. Because when you reflect on the gospel in any situation that you're in, does not matter every single situation. When you have the centrality of the gospel in your life, you're gonna be able to say, wow, this person just wronged me. It might've been many years ago that this person's wronged me and I've had bitterness towards this person. But guess what? I have been forgiven when I am undeserving. So let me go to her, to him, and reconcile, even though I know they don't deserve it, because I know I did not deserve the forgiveness I've received. That is a functioning gospel in your life, and we do not always do that. Another example, another illustration, Milton Vincent in his book, uh, The Gospel Primer, which is an amazing book, by the way, I encourage you to go buy that. Such an influential book in my life. He breaks it down like this: He says, We have in the Christian life gospel indicatives and gospel imperatives. Sorry, I'm taking you to an English class again, not trying to do that. But what an indicative is, is it's a statement. He's saying, okay, Jake, you are forgiven. Jake, you are a child of God. Jake, you are redeemed. That is an indicative. It is telling me something of who I am or what I have. And since knowing these indicatives, I can now go and live a life of gospel imperatives. Imperatives are command. Kids in the room, when when your parents tell you to do something, that's an imperative. Parents, when your spouse tells you to do something, that's an imperative. We... If we think that we're going to live out this perfect life of obeying God, you're going to be surely disappointed and have no faith at all because this is going to be based on you. If you base your faith on a church and they let you down, it was not faith at all because it was not faith in God. If you have faith in yourself, it is not faith because it's not faith in God. So if you have faith in what Christ has done for you, if you believe the indicatives of your life and what that means, what you have, you are able to be sustained and nourished completely to be able to go and love and obey the commands of God. You're able to go repent. So because of this, because we know who we are in Christ, that stirs up an emotion. Some of you guys might be fired up right now. I'm going to I'm gonna be reading the whole Bible today. I'm going to get baptized. No, I'm just kidding. It stirs up an emotion in us, and that's where Paul draws to in the very end of verse two. It says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because of what we know we have in Christ. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And this is a natural reaction. Another translation, instead of rejoice, it says boast. I boast. I'm excited. I'm trying to tell everybody, trying to share what I have, the hope of the glory of God. I rejoice in that. And this hope, this idea of hope, you might be getting confused. Hope today, what we might think Paul is talking about, Is wishful thinking. Am I thinking, I really hope, I have no confidence this is gonna happen, but I'm just crossing my fingers hoping that this comes along. What Paul is talking about with that hope is a certainty. That is what he's meaning by that. He's saying a certainty that this is gonna happen. I have an expectation that this is going to be an event in my life. So he's saying, I hope. I expect the glory of God one day. So I am able to be hoping joyfully that God, the God who has saved me from my sin, the God who has redeemed me and forgiven me, I'm gonna be able one day to rejoice and worship and reverence the God who has redeemed me. That is what he's saying we hope for because of what we have in Christ. And so God's grace frees us to a life of worship rather than burden. We go to our point number three, through the gospel, once again, we have right hope in God. We get to the last three verses of Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. I'll read it right now. Starting in verse 3, not only that. He's saying, but wait, there's more. You have stuff in Christ, but wait. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, given, who has been given to us. So right here in these verses, Paul is probably facing an objection from some Christian or maybe a non-believer saying that you guys might be thinking the same objection. Saying, Paul, Jake, you don't know a thing about what I go through. How can I have hope? How can I rejoice in something, one, that I can't see? And two, look at the suffering in the lives that we live now. How can we hope for something greater? And this is what He says, Paul is saying not only is this just some um, abstract thinking or head-in-the-sky kind of religion, he's saying though we hope for that because we know it is going to happen, we can experience, we can live, we can rejoice in what we are going through now. So we can rejoice in our sufferings. These sufferings aren't just like a minor convenience, minor convenience like kids are taken forever and we're going to be late to church. Or maybe, I'm late to work, I'm hitting every red light. Lord, why are you putting me through this? I don't think it is, that's what Paul's talking about. And I also, I also don't think he's only talking about Christian persecution. He's not only talking about when we get killed as a, or die as a martyr. He's not talking about when we only go to prison for our beliefs. I believe that he's talking about the pain and the suffering that we deal with in our daily Christian lives. The trauma that we face. And Paul knew. Paul knew what suffering was. He's not just making it up because he's never experienced it before and saying, hey, you guys deal with it, right? Paul experienced shipwreck, experienced being whipped, almost stoned to death, starved, lost his influence as a Pharisee, having to fund, having to work his own ministry. He knew what suffering was, and he says that we can rejoice in that. And that might not make sense for some people, but when we change our perspective to what Paul is trying to say, we can recognize that, hey, we know what is to come in the hope of the glory of God so we can rejoice because we know what our suffering is going to bring. What is that? He says suffering produces endurance. Do we have any runners in here? I'm not a runner, so I'm with you guys. So we got some, maybe one. Just my sister, I see her hand. For you guys who run, maybe jog, whatever you like to do, if you just got a hobby, you may do it over and over and over until it starts hurting so that you can endure to go more. For runners, you may run miles, miles on end, so that one day you can have the endurance to run more miles and miles on end. It doesn't really make sense, if why I don't run. Or some people who work out, right? We break, we're literally tearing our muscles so that we can fill them up, so we can lift more weights, do more reps, lift heavier weight. We do that so we may gain endurance, and the same is for the Christian life. I want to clarify we do not wish for harm or for suffering to come in our lives, right? We do not rejoice in evil. But what we can do is embrace the suffering that does come into our lives. I can't tell you how many, times, how many times I had to go through something so that I can be the person I am or so that I can last longer in certain situations because they've happened so many times. If we back up, you guys are in your seats, you can't do that, but I can. If you guys back up and think in retrospect of what the trauma that you've had to deal with, the suffering and the pain that you have in your life, you can be able to say, man, I would not be where I am today If I did not have to do that, if I did not have to endure that pain, that trauma, or I wouldn't be this kind of person, I wouldn't be able to be this kind of father, be this mother, be this friend, be this sibling, be this Christian if I did not have to endure what I did, and to that we can rejoice in. If you are a believer, this may be another surprise for some of you guys, God is not punishing you in your suffering. If he was punishing you, that means there's still sin to be punished and Christ's death was for nothing, right? So if you are in Christ, Christ is not doing this to punish you, but he is doing this to mold you. He's doing this, the lessons, the experiences that we have are doing so to endure us, to build our character. It says suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character. It's not God's goal, Christians, for you to live a comfortable, successful life. It is not. What his goal, what his will, what his plan is for you is to build, to mold you to be like his son, perfect in all ways, shapes, and form. It may not look like that now, but you look over four decades of living a faithful Christian life, you'll be able to see, man, I'm not the person that I want to be, but I'm for sure not the person that I was. So it may be death in your family, it might be a disease, It might be doubt. It might be sin in your life. It might be a broken relationship. It might be a few difficult kids or maybe a difficult spouse. It may be a toxic work environment. Some of you guys are going to say or thinking in your minds, Jake, you don't have a clue of the life that I live. And I can tell you that, yeah, I don't. I may know some of you. I don't know all of you. But what I do confidently know is the God who has control over that. So as we look to Scripture, as we see a functioning gospel in our lives, We can point, right? Some of you may know this by heart. Romans 8.28. It's not on the screen, but for all things, not just some things at some times, but it says, for all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So if you are a Christian, if you have faith in Christ to forgive your sins, you are one who loves God and you are one who is called according to his purpose. And so to that, you can say, all things in my life are working for my good. The issue that we have sometimes is, what is my good? My good is not my comfortability. My good is not success financially or materialistically. My good, whether I have nothing or whether I have much, is to be made to be more like Christ. Your good is not a lack of suffering. It is a process of growing to be more like him. Christ loves us so much, yes, that he died for us where we were. Romans 5, 8, we're not going to get to it today, but it's still in the same chapter, that we know God's love by this, that Christ died for us while still sinners. So he died for you, bought you where you were at, but he loves you more than that because he does not leave you where he at, but moves you to become more like him. And that, brothers and sisters, is something that we need to strive for in our Christian life. This Christian Americanized idea of what Christianity is, that God wants to prosper you in your life now, is false. And if you have that goal, Christians, of getting up materialistically, growing financially, you are going to have a bad life. It is going to leave you unfulfilled, unhappy. It might give you a little high at the time, but I'm sure when God comes to judge, you're going to be regretting that you were shooting for that in your life. But if you are aiming saying, Lord, no matter what situation I'm in, Paul says, I know what it is to have much, and know what it is to have little, but I have Christ to be content with. And if I am being conformed to Christ, Lord, I am happy and I will endure it. And because you're throwing so much suffering into my life, I can endure and it's building my character. And lastly, this character leads to a hope, the same hope that Paul talks about in verse two. We know that this life is not easy. We know that this life sometimes is in our minds, it's not worth living. But I can tell you we have a hope and we long for the day when Christ returns because he will take all evil, all suffering, all pain away, restore all things. And so when we have an eternal mindset, when we're not focusing on our lives now, but focusing on what we have in the future, in this hope of the glory of God, we're able to endure so much more because we know what it is going to bring. Paul says this about his sufferings, and it applies to you uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, this is what it says. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, isn't that kind of crazy? We know what Paul went through. I'm sure he'd call your stuff the same thing, a light momentary affliction. Why does he call that? Because it is preparing for us an eternal way of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I can remember, I don't know if you guys ever seen the sermon, Francis Chan lays out this big old rope, and there's just a little piece of red tape, rope goes all the way across the stage, and he says, so many of you guys are just worried about this little tiny inch of rope while you guys have eternity on there, right? Right? When we set our hopes to the right things, hope does not put us to shame because, why? We have the love of God in us through the Holy Spirit. And his love has not been sprinkled on you, has been flicked, has been splashed on you, but it says it has been poured out. It has been dumped. Niagara Falls of grace and love have been poured out on you, believer, and we need to begin believing that. And to reinforce this, the last passage that we'll be in as we close out, Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, this is what it says about God's love. I'm so sorry, I'm in 2 Corinthians. Ignore me, guys, my bad. Here we go, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, Paul says, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things unseen, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So once again, what does Paul tie this to? It is rooted in the gospel in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love for you is not based on you and how good you are, what you've done, but it is based on how good Christ is and what he has done for us. And so I encourage you this morning, believers, live out this gospel. See how it functions in your life. If it is a functioning gospel, I can tell you whether suffering or pain is happening right now or is going to continue. You're going to be able to say, guys, my biggest worry, my biggest burden in my life of whether or not I am right with God, I can stay rest assured and confidently say, as Roman, 1, or Roman 5 1 says, I am at peace with God because I have been justified by faith. So God, yeah, bring on these pains, bring on these sufferings because I know what is going to endure and then one day I hope I am excited. I expect to be at your feet, worshiping you for who you are and what you have done for in my life. To close it out, we haven't done communion yet. You guys probably noticed that. We're going to a time of communion. We're going to be playing, um, as you guys are walking around getting the cups, Uh, Amazing Grace, which is one of my favorites. Love that thing. You can ask Alyssa, if you put Carrie Underwood singing Amazing Grace, you might see me cry backstage. So we have Justin, so I'm not going to cry. But I encourage you guys, as you guys are praying, as John is gonna be coming out and talking, reflect on the lyrics of that song. Notice who you were before Christ, a wretch, undeserving of his love. Notice what he has done for you on the cross, dying for your sins, and recognize the hope that we have when he will be returning. There's a line in there that says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, but grace my fears relieved.'" So church, how do you lose this fear of if we are right with God? I tell you you believe solely on Jesus and his gospel for the forgiveness of your sins, assurance of your salvation and rest in the grace when we do not meet that standard. Thank you.
1: See grace, how sweet was grace that tore my heart.
2: shared with us today. In fact, you could think of it this way. The entire message was a communion meditation. We come together and we hold this bread, we hold this cup because he made us right with God. Right standing with God, right relationship with God, right hope with God. It's all summed up in one word, righteousness. But we're not righteous because of our effort. We're righteous because of his effort. And we accept that by faith that gift given by His grace. So with that bread right now, remember your Jesus and what He did for you. with that cup, remember the peace that we now have with God because He's covered our sin. He paid the price for our sin. Let's remember Him right now. God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you grace really is amazing. Now, God, be with us as we go to live a life worthy of this calling, worthy of your grace, worthy of your gift. As we move into this new year, may it be a year where we clearly, passionately are pursuing you with everything we've got. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here today. If uh, you want somebody to pray with, you can come up and pray with somebody. I'm sorry cut you off while you're clapping. That's awesome. awesome. Uh, If you have kids, I'm going to encourage you to do something. When you go down to pick up your kids, fifth grade and down, would you please look one of those people who are helping down there in the eye and say, thank you. Thank you for taking care of my kids, ministering to my kids, encouraging my kids. Tell them thank you. And then take your kids home. All right. Have a great week. We'll see you next year.